0: Indeed, Father, you are holy, and you have claimed that your church is holy and sanctified before you, and we pray by your promise the Holy Spirit would be among us, even in us, O Lord, as we proclaim and expound upon the written word of God this morning. We pray your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to open again to the book of Romans this morning. I imagine we'll be saying that for some time, unless I get tired. (laughs) So open the book of Romans, chapter 3, this morning. We're going to start off. I'll read the first 20 verses. I can't possibly speak on all 20 of those verses this morning, but I will make a very small dent in expositing the first two verses. So chapter 3 of the book of Romans, and the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome. What advantage then has the Jew... Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you're judged. But if your unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God... What shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we're slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we do say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God." Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Father, we ask your assistance in deciphering the deep meaning of this, your holy word this morning, Father, and may you give your servant right words, accurate words, O Lord, true doctrines of God in explaining the deep things of God this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These are indeed the deep things of God. Um, Made a couple of overwhelming statements here. One, that everyone is under the curse of sin, whether Jew or Greek, everyone in the world. There is none righteous, there is no, not one. He's working to increase the urgency that men have to seek salvation. And he's pointing to the one place where it can be provided to the cross of Christ. And so let's just begin with verse 1 of this chapter where he asks this question, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what's the profit of circumcision? Now he's talking, what he's talking about here is that the Jews have had the word of God for a full 2,000 years by this time, since the time of Abraham, since God made covenant with Abraham. And somewhere circa 1500 BC, Moses put it in print. And all through the ages coming up, the different prophets that we read of in the scriptures were writing their books and adding their prophecies to the canon. And the Jews were the sole people on earth entrusted with what he's calling here the oracles of God. Now, we spent much of the last few sessions talking about the theme of the first two sections of the book of Romans, the first two chapters, if you will. And the theme, friends, is wrath, and it's really no different here. But he has these sub-themes that we really need to look into as we go into this wonderful and fearful section of Scripture. And so the theme is wrath. The theme is the pervasive nature of wrath. It is upon everybody, and wrath is judgment. God does not look upon the earth... And see good people and bad people. He looks upon the earth and he sees bad people and Jesus Christ. And we said that the wrath of God doesn't take into account the person. God's not like us. We're respecters of persons. We say, well, yeah, he sinned, but he's basically a good guy. You see, God can't do that. He takes the sin more seriously than he takes the guy. We take the guy more seriously than the sin. And so God, as we said, is no respecter of persons. What What God looks at with regards to judgment is the nature of the sin committed and all have sinned, as the apostle wrote. He looks at the nature of the sin and he looks at the nature of sin wherever it is found, whether it's found in the Jew who had the law for 2,000 years or whether it's found in the Gentile who's just being introduced to the law of God and the word of God. And when he says the law, he refers to the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. It was being written as they were reading This one installment, you understand. And we noted that it was the apostles' concern for the church in this section that Jewish Christians in the early church may have thought wrongly that they didn't share the same measure of guilt of sin that their Gentile brothers and sisters had. And it would be almost reasonable for them to presume that. They had the word of God. They had the moral law in their hand. And it was written. And it was inscribed on their doorposts. And on the hems of the garments of Pharisees, it was all over the place. They met in synagogue every Sabbath, and they expounded and read from the written word. It would only be reasonable to think that maybe they were exempt from the wrath of God. And we labored over this concept quite a bit in the last two weeks. Um, And so the apostle asks this rhetorical question. If that's the case, if the Jews are as guilty as the Gentiles of sin, then Was there any advantage in owning the oracles of God at all? The Jewish presumption of innocence before God as a privilege of circumcision was a false presumption. And you had to wonder, as they did, if their ethnic connection to Abraham, the keeper of the covenant. Remember, they kept having to be reminded by John the Baptist and then later by Jesus, don't think to look to Abraham for your salvation. God can raise up sons of Abraham from the stones. So your ethnic connection to Abraham isn't a loophole in getting around the final judgment. It may have been presumed that that pedigree along with their immersion in Jewish culture for their whole lives long, their lives full of ritual sacrifices and temple worship, somehow exempted them from the same type of urgency to repent of sins that was expected for Gentiles. Well, of course the Gentiles have to repent. They didn't go to synagogue this week. They didn't sacrifice a lamb at Passover this year. Of course they have sinned. And so the apostle is assuming that the Jews might presume this wrongly of themselves, creating this false security, you see. So the apostle, due to to the assumptions that men generally make and the logical leaps that we all tend to take when confronted with reasoned arguments... He thought to head them off at the pass. And the pass would be that they might assume from these previous conclusions that there was no advantage then to being Jewish. No, you're just as guilty as they are for the same sins, but there's a great advantage still in being Jewish and being keepers of the oracles of God. And he's making this distinction, and that's what he's drawing down on here in this section. Some might have reasoned that Paul was saying that all the covenant history from Abraham to Moses and then from Moses to the period of the judges and then from the judges to the kingdom years under David and Solomon and all of the kings were of no moral use to those who experienced these things. What use then was the scriptures if we're still guilty and under the wrath of God? Of what use was it to have been entrusted with, this, with the oracles of God if our guilt is the same as the guilt of the Gentiles? If there's no advantage to having been the keepers of the law for all of these centuries, then the Old Testament itself, it seems, would have been an exercise in futility. But the apostles are going to parse this reason. There is great advantage in having the written word of God in your hand and before your eyes. If the Jews had no moral advantage over pagans, then what was the use of being introduced to the covenants and the laws of Almighty God for century after century of the ancient world. And so he assumes, because he tells them they're just as guilty for the same sins here as they are here, that they might assume that there was no advantage to being keepers of the law. And so the apostle seeks to set the record straight with regard to the moral and covenantal position of the Jews. And so he goes straight to the point. He answers the anticipated question that he presumes will be asked when the epistle is read before the congregation of Rome. Now let's recall the last section of the previous chapter where Paul wrote these words. He wrote, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, you remember this? Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, he writes, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The outward sign of our Christianity brings the praises of men. The inward reality of our circumcised heart brings praises from God, he says. Every Jew in Israel, friends, had the scripture inscribed over the doorposts and lintels of his house. But how many had the word of God inscribed in their hearts? How many loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind? Well, I think we know the answer because as we look at the New Testament, Jesus accused them, the, the Jews, of killing all the prophets. You know, Jeremiah prophesied a time when the people of God would have a new relationship with the Word of God. The prophet writes to his own people saying what the apostles teaching here. Jeremiah wrote in the sixth century BC. He was a contemporary of Daniel the prophet and some of the others. He was taken into Babylon when Daniel and the friends were taken. There was actually three waves, and they were each taken in one of those waves. This goes way back hundreds of years before Christ, some 600 years, and Jeremiah preached the gospel. He said, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. That's just what the apostle's saying here. He said, but this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. And the apostle is making the case that it was a great advantage to have that written word before them. And so he's making the case that the prophets had made throughout covenant history. When David sang his psalm of repentance for the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, he reveled in this deeper understanding of the law that the law revealed. And it was to his great advantage that he had the oracles of God before him. And so David in Psalm 51 reveals that it's not merely outward, it's inward conviction. It's not the blood of rams that cleanses. That's the symbol of the cleansing. That's the symbol of the real atoning blood. It's the brokenness of one's own heart that cleanses a soul before God. It's a First, it's a recognition of our own sin. And you remember, I told you the story, the parable of Nathan a couple of weeks ago, and he confronted David, and he said to David, You are the man. David, of course, was one of these Jews to whom Paul is speaking today. He just presumed innocence upon himself. But he said, you're the man. You're the man that's committed the grievous sin. And so David recognized this, and his brokenness became genuine and inward. But because he had the oracles of God, he had the remedy for his brokenness, you see. And so he sang to God, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, he sang. The God of my salvation, And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Notice the emphasis of David's confession. He pleads, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you'll not despise. So here the king is demonstrating the advantage of having and knowing the oracles of God. And so there's this definite recognition for the need of repentance. And this is not a confession from a sinner among the Jews, your rank-and-file sinner. This is a heartfelt confession from a divinely appointed king of Israel who was said to be the apple of God's eye. If anyone was special and exempt from guilt of sin, it would have been a man like David. And so what's the doctrine applied here? Well, it's this. Friends, blood sacrifice, that is outward ritual alone, cannot atone for the sins of men. The sacrifice of lambs and goats, that doesn't erase the sins of Israel if they're not attended by inner conviction of sin and a broken heart of repentance. David's a great prophet king. I've said many times he's a favorite of the Almighty. Lloyd-Jones doesn't believe in favorites. Respectfully, I do. I think God had some favorites. Yet God judges sin according to truth. Paul wrote in chapter 2, there are no exemptions. God is no respecter of persons. But he is a respecter of truth and truth in sentencing and of righteous judgment. And no one escapes the wrath of God for his sins. And so David, whose heart had genuinely been broken for the egregious acts of the flesh, pleaded for forgiveness. And he knew the abounding mercy of God. The power of the law was not in the letter. It's in the spirit of the law. It wasn't in the outward act of sacrificing an animal. It was in the inward act of sacrificing yourself before God. The power of the law is not in the letter. It's in the spirit of the law. And the spirit of God reveals it to the king. And so David may rightly plead for mercy. And he prayed this created me a clean heart, O oh God. He knew that God, the creator that created him once, could recreate him. Created me a clean heart, he said. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Give me this heart of flesh, he pleads. Write your will upon my heart. And remember what we pointed to last week. The temporal consequences of David's sin Would follow him all the days of his life. Friends, we don't always we can be delivered from our sin, but that doesn't. But sin has consequences in this life, and the sword of adversity would hang over David's house. That was the curse that the sin brought upon him in this life, and that didn't disappear with the promise that in eternity he'd be with God. On the other hand, there were other Jews, great men who had the law, and didn't quite have the understanding of it that David exhibits here. You may remember Saul, who was king before David, like Achan of old. Remember Achan in the time of Joshua? They went into battle, and they were told not to take of the accursed things, the things God hates, and Achan took of them and brought sin upon Israel. Well, Saul did similarly. God said not to take the plunder of the enemy after they have been defeated. Yet we read this. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, And they sacrificed them to the Lord. So they took the things the Lord said he vehemently hates to be separated from. And because of the letter of the law that talks about blood sacrifice, they thought, I'll sacrifice these accursed things and God will forgive my sin. But Samuel, the great prophet, the last of the judges, Samuel, he came to the king to let him know that even he was not exempt from the wrath of God. And so, unlike David, this is the epitaph that Samuel gave to Saul. He said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And then he gave this pronouncement, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you, from being king. Friends, the atoning ritual that Saul and the people committed added guilt before God. It didn't erase it, it added guilt upon guilt. He knew what the law required. He knew the commandment of God, and yet he thought to sin anyway and to use the law to his advantage. Remember what the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount when you come into the place of worship and you're bringing your gift to the altar and you remember that you have offended your brother. He said, go and make peace with your brother first, leave the gift, and then come back to worship me rightly before God. It seems, though they had the word, they misunderstood it. And so the prophets, David and Samuel, had a right understanding of the law. The sacrificial system was not given so that Israel could sin in the day and make sacrifices by night, atoning for the sin. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? No, they were the children of God who obeyed the voice of God. To obey is better than sacrifice, he said. They are the children who made themselves accountable to God, who laid themselves bare upon the altar. Their confession of sin was their blood sacrifice. It was the written word that revealed that to them. They had it in their hand, and it was a great advantage. And so I would say two things with regard to our understanding of the Scriptures. First, The law, rightly understood, was always an inner conviction over an outward ritual. It was always about inner righteousness over outward pretension of righteousness. And a second point is this, that those who had a right understanding of the law knew that it pointed to a merciful Messiah who would forgive them. They knew the blood of rams and goats was but a symbol of the true blood of an anointing Savior that was to come. There was no mistake in them regarding this which leads the apostle to argue for the advantage they had in owning the written word. So what advantage has the Jew who had the written oracle? Paul gives the answer, much in every way, he says. It's always an advantage to know the will of God. It's always an advantage to have access to his will. It's always advantageous to know the way of salvation conveyed in the word. And it was and is the supreme advantage to be entrusted to be the custodians of history, friends. They had history in their hands like no other nation on earth had. It was an advantage that they held that pearl of great price in their hands. And that advantage, friends, has shifted from Jewish hands to Christian hands. And now we are the keepers of the oracles of God. We're the custodians of the word of life. And so the apostle poses the great rhetorical question, so that there's no misunderstanding in his teaching. Yes, Jewish guilt of sin is like Gentile guilt of sin. It's based upon the sin, not upon the sinner. But that doesn't mean that there was no palpable advantage for the Jew over the Gentile. The Jews need the grace of Christ just as much as the Gentiles he's preaching. There was great advantage in their Jewish heritage, and the apostle focused on the principal advantage. He said, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now remember, I started out this series by saying that to every argument Paul makes with regard to the Jews of his time, I will apply to the Christians of our time. If the Jews of Paul's time saw themselves as above the law with regard to its judgments, the Christians of our day ought to regard those statements as pointing to them. If there's self-righteousness that's endemic in first-century Jews, there's perhaps the same sense of self-righteousness among 21st-century Christians. If they saw their sins as lessened by their proximity to Jewish culture and religion, we may see our sins as lessened due to the proximity to the doctrines of grace and Christian culture. If they thought they were saved automatically because of their religious practices— So may we do that in our day. And I have added to this treatment of the message that to put ourselves in their place is still the safest place to be. Take the admonishment from the apostle. There's no shame in being admonished. There's no disadvantage in being corrected. There's only advantage in these things. And it's only pride that would keep us from seeing this clearly. And so his great question was posed in verse one and it's answered in verse two. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, he answers. And then he moves on to the specifics. And he really focuses on one specific advantage only. He says that it is their chief advantage that to them were committed the oracles of God. And he's speaking of the Scriptures when he says that. He's speaking specifically of the Old Testament. He calls them oracles. What are oracles? Well, they're things of divine and prophetic importance, right? you ever been in a company of people and someone sort of spoke authoritatively and someone sarcastically said, the oracle has spoken, all right? Well, that's a sarcastic reference to the oracle. The oracle is the one from on high, the authoritative voice, all right? And in this case, the written word of God. But let's look at this word oracle. The word oracle is used a mere four times, in the New Testament. It was first used by Stephen. You remember Stephen? He gave that great apologetic of Christian history, and he did as Paul did, and he pointed out the Jewish guilt. But Stephen spoke of Moses when he said, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. And so the word of God given to Moses, Stephen calls the oracles of God. The word in Greek is logion. Sound familiar? Sounds similar to the word logos for word, doesn't it? It's used a number of ways in scripture, and in every case it relates to the written word. In the lexicon, they give us, they give us four applications of it, and all four of them are useful for this text. It's a word, it's a narrative, it's a statement, and it denotes a, design, a divine response to utterance. And so we, the lexicon goes on to say, number one, the context, the contents of Mosaic law are the oracles. A second meaning is all the written utterances of God through the Old Testament. That's its meaning in this specific verse, Romans 3.2. Thirdly, it means the substance of Christian doctrine. And fourthly, it means the utterances of God through Christian teachers. Friends, I offer you this morning the oracles of God the way God intended for you to receive them. And so we have these four ways in which the oracle can be used. But it's used in this context as all the written utterances of God through the Old Testament writers. Friends, think of it. Asking if if the Jew had an advantage over the Gentile in finding the way of salvation and and, um, forgiveness before God... That's like asking, does the, do the children of Christian parents have an advantage over worldly parents? I hope we know. If you grew up in a Christian home, you had a great advantage. Now, you still might have fallen astray, as Saul and some of the others that we pointed out, but you had a great advantage. You had godly parents. You had a religious schedule in your life. You knew the disciplines. You had access to God through the name of Christ. No, the Jews had a great advantage in having the oracles of God, and so do the children of Christian parents have that advantage. And I hope you know that, and praise God for it. So it's no small blessing. Paul says it's the chief blessing. And I'm seeing graphically today in the lives of certain people that holding the oracles of God in our hand is not only the chief advantage of our faith, it's the only necessary thing in this life. And that becomes clear to us when circumstances close us in and we feel ourselves in trial and affliction, if you're suffering right now, if you're suffering unto, de- unto death, if for some reason, like the fact that you're being bombarded by an aggressive enemy to your country, perhaps, the oracles of God are not only chief among your needs, they represent the only need you have at this time. And, I'm not, and that's not to say that the word of God in our hands is not always the chief blessing. It's just that sometimes circumstances graphically reveal that to us. I would also point out to you the fourth use of the word that the lexicon gives us, the word oracle. It says this, oracles refer to the utterances of God through Christian teachers. Peter wrote of that in 1 Peter 4.11. He said, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's one of the four times it's used. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, the Jews of old were treated to centuries, to millennia of privilege by their access to and their sole custodianship of the oracles of God. It was indeed a great advantage. And by extension, that privilege and that responsibility have, put up, have been put upon us. We have the greatest, the only real advantage possible in this life, friends. We have the Word of God, and we appeal to it individually on a daily basis, or I hope we do, and we come weekly on a corporate basis. And sometimes bi-weekly or tri-weekly, we come to services of the church. Why? Because the oracles of God are spoken there, and our need of it has been revealed to us. And the words the preacher preachers, preachers are the oracles of God prepared for us by God. We sang it this morning, the spirit and the gifts are ours. Those are from God, friends. And I would say that we ought not squander the privilege, the blessing that God has given us. And the apostle here is saying that the Jews of the Roman church who are rightly oriented in their position in the church as Jews, as custodians of this pearl of great price, had a great advantage over their Gentile brothers Because they had intimate access with this greatest of blessings all their lives. If they miss the gospel in their understanding, friends, they have it now. And they're not to see themselves as deserving, but they've been advantaged like no other race of people on the earth. And we and our children are privileged to an even greater extent than they. So let me say this also. There's no greater curse, friends. There's no greater famine than to be starved for a word from God. And the prophet Amos made this prediction to his people in his time. He said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. It will not be a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They will wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Friends, the oracle was preached all throughout our biblical history, and our real history, (laughs) our actual history. It was preached to the serpent in the garden where God said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Adam was entrusted with the oracles of God where God said, And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Abel was entrusted with the oracles of God. We read Abel, brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel in his offering. Cain was given the oracles of God. He was enlightened by them. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Noah had the oracle, and God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me... Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants. This is the sign of the covenant, he said to Noah. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. We know that Abraham had the oracles of God. God said to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You don't think there's great advantage, Paul is saying, and Abraham knowing that? Moses had the oracles, we read, I have surely seen the oppression of my people, God said, who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry, so I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of bondage. And we've been entrusted with the oracles, friends. And I'll close with this. So we read from John, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Our Father, we praise you for the oracles of God, and we ask you, Father, to empower us, to be responsible custodians of this great grace, O Lord, the written word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.